Assuming that not everyone here has had a perfect week with no problems, just a very brief review of a, a Christian response, and I will model it for you uh, based on James and 1 Peter and Romans of rejoicing in the Lord when we struggle. Yay. <laughs> okay, all together now. Yay. No, that was too much energy, too much energy, little, little less. Okay, here we go. Yay. Okay, that's good. There's a part of us when we go through problems that we, we really have trouble rejoicing even though we know the Bible says to. And poor Apostle Paul, as we see him going through one crisis after another in the ministry of his service to God, is now facing another one. And actually, to be honest with you, from chapter 20 through 28 to the very end of the book, it's all about Paul going from one crisis to another. He's going through a gauntlet. He is being delivered repeatedly by God, and I've entitled the message this morning, Deliverance, One Battle at a Time. And I want to read the text, and I hope and pray that we're going to learn some things together about why we can actually rejoice and our hope, even in the problems that we face, that God is with us. And I know that you've got problems. I have problems. Everyone has problems. We have challenges. You probably even have some things on your mind this morning that you're struggling with and are weighing on you, that are concerns, and you're not sure how it's going to turn out. And uh, by God's grace, you'll leave this place with hope and a blessing and encouragement from God himself. But I want to read the text in, uh, in Acts 22, beginning in the last verse. So if you can turn there, and while you're turning there, I'm going to give a brief review uh, for those of you that uh, haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem and present the gospel to his fellow Jews. He hadn't been there in 20 years. But he had this burning desire, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he had this burning passion to go back to his own people and communicate the great truth of the freedom that's possible for those that would receive the gift of salvation in Christ. And uh, as he gets in Jerusalem, pretty much before he has a chance to really even begin preaching, the Asian Jews who are Jews from Ephesus, the previous town he got run out of for preaching the gospel, tracked him down and began to incite riots against Paul. And so the commander, uh, Claudius Lysias, who's in the fortress of Antonia that's right next door and adjacent to the Temple Mount, comes down with his centurions and several hundred troops and he rescues Paul. And as Paul is being carried out on the shoulders of these soldiers, he, he says, commander, commander, would you allow me the privilege of speaking to these people for a minute? And the commander's got to be thinking, you're out of your mind. You almost got killed. But he was so stunned, I think, by the request that he permitted Paul to speak. And if you recall, Paul spoke for some time and then got to the point where he started talking about God's favor on the Gentiles as well, and the place just unraveled. And again, they were trying to kill Paul. And once again, this poor, <laughs> this poor Roman commander, not even knowing really what's happening or why Paul is being accused of all these things, is once again in a position of trying to rescue Paul, a Roman citizen. You know, I, I've thought about this uh, just before we get into uh, the text, and I, I do want to read it, so let me do that first. And, uh, and again, we're in, in uh, chapter 22, beginning in verse 30. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias 
ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it was written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and to bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it that you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a dispatchment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of the plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. 
So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we're just delighted to be here. It is such a, a pleasure, God, to begin our week in your presence and to enjoy the company of the saints and to just be able to study your word like this is such an honor. And I'm praying, God, that because of your great love for each man and woman here, that you would minister to them and to me and that you would speak. Father, I've done my homework and my preparation, but I have no confidence in myself at all. And I'm asking that you would fill my heart and my mind and my lips with your words and with your heart for your people. And that what you want to say today would come across wonderfully and beautifully and with the purpose of uplifting and strengthening your sons and daughters. And we pray all these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I've been reading in my uh, devotions, in my own personal quiet times in the morning, in the book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 8, and you can look up this, uh, this passage on your own at your leisure this week, but in chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, Moses begins to lay out some of the challenges that the people of Israel have faced during their wilderness wanderings. And he says two things to them. He says that God did this, number one, to humble you, and number two, to test you, to strengthen you. And here's the truth is that we all have problems and challenges, and some of you are dealing with very significant ones right now in your life. Some of you are just coming out of very significant ones and you're coming into your period of rest just before you get hit with the next significant one because <laughs> it's coming, you know, that's just life, they come. And, uh, but the Bible teaches us very clearly that there is a purpose and a reason for all these things. Part of it, at least, is what we find in, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3, is that God allows these things to happen. He doesn't always orchestrate them. Sometimes it's just stupid sin that we do. Uh, we've talked about that before. But however they come, God does allow them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be entering into our life. But oftentimes, he does it to humble us, to get us to the point where we just give up. For the people of Israel, it was to the point where they had nothing to eat, no water to drink, nowhere to turn. They didn't know how they were going to live. I mean, that's very basic. And when a person, especially a man, but anyone, I, I believe, but especially a man, the way we're wired, when we can't provide even food on the table, that's humbling. And sometimes God takes us to places like that to teach us how very vulnerable we really are. And it's not just food, but sometimes it's poor health. Sometimes it's a financial crisis of some kind. Sometimes it's a relationship that deteriorates. Sometimes it's losing a job or getting a pink slip or, you know, having the bottom fall out with your kids. There are a variety of things that happen in life that are very humbling, but also God says he uses these things to test us, not to ruin us, to test us to advance the cause of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and, and 2 and actually all through there, it talks about the power of God to use these things to refine his people like pure gold. And you don't get refined in, you know, in the icebox. You, know, you don't get refined on the beach. You get refined in a furnace. And that furnace is trials and difficulties. 
So I, I'm praying that by the time we're done, as we look at the Apostle Paul this morning, and he's going to go through two major, major life-threatening crises in his life, as we study this, that you'll walk away from this place this morning encouraged and built up. And maybe your yay will turn into a little bit more of a praise to God, acknowledging that this isn't wasted what's happening in your life. It's not wasted what's happening in my life either. And so we find in the text in, in, uh, in 2230 that uh, the commander, again, is rescuing the apostle Paul and he orders the chief priests in the Sanhedrin to assemble. Now, the Sanhedrin were the equivalent of our, our country's Senate and Supreme Court combined. This was the, this was the, this was the top of the heap. This was, these were the dis, dis, decision makers. These were the people that set the laws. These were the people that were the religious leaders. They were the ones that were representatives of God Almighty to God's people. And so the commander, understanding that this problem that Paul seems to be having with this group of Jews is a, a religious problem, not a legal problem, not a problem with Rome, but a problem with Jewish law. And so he had Paul stand on trial uh, before this austere body of leaders. Now, it's interesting because if you look back in the, in the uh, New Testament, we find that this is the fifth time in 20 years that this leadership team made up of the high priest and 70 elders had met to deal with this issue of Christianity. The first was after the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They had a meeting about that. You've got to have a meeting when somebody gets raised from the dead to figure out how you're going to stop that. We don't want anybody coming back to life. Uh, when Jesus was on trial, uh, of course, they met to, to uh, inquire and to grill Jesus Christ uh, for who he was and the claims that he was making. And then after the preaching and healing of ministry and, uh, and the ministry of Peter and John when they, when they healed the paralytic, of course, you can't, you can't be healing people. You can't be giving people new hope and new life without the Sanhedrin coming in and trying to stop that. And so they had another meeting. When the church began to experience explosive growth in Acts chapter 5, they were very concerned that they were going to lose everything that they had worked their whole lives to try to maintain and help and build, of course, for the people, but mainly really for them. And so they had another meeting. And the last meeting prior to this one was at the trial of Stephen, where they put this saint, this godly man, who was simply carrying out the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing with all the love that he could to his fellow Jews, and they stoned him to death at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And so now, more than 25 years later, here we find the Apostle Paul facing the same uh, group of men, the Sanhedrin. And Paul begins by sharing a defense of his position. And he claimed in his defense in verse 1 of chapter 23 to have fulfilled all his duty before God. I was thinking about that and I thought, you know, that's, a, that's an amazing claim to make. To be able to say, I have done everything that God has required of me. I, you know, I have kind of a goal when I go to bed at night that I can put my head on my pillow and say, it is finished. You know, Jesus on the cross saying he completed everything. I, I, I can't even get through a day. He went through 33 years of life and I can't get through a day with absolute confidence that I fulfilled everything God has called me to. But that's kind of a goal. I want, I want to live that kind of a life. But Paul goes before this group of men and he says, I fulfilled my duty to God. I've done what God has called me to do. And the question is, what, what did God call him to do? Well, we know from Acts chapter 20 because Paul in his own words in verse 24 tells us what it is. It's the task of testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his call. That was his duty. 
And Paul says, I have fulfilled that. And as we look back in the book of Acts, yeah, he has. To his detriment, to his harm, he's now imprisoned. He's in bonds. He's been beaten already several times. He's been run out of town after town after town for preaching life in Christ, for helping to set people free from sin. You know, I think the only thing that really prevents us from fulfilling our God-given duty is simply sin, you know? It's, it's kind of being a little self-absorbed. It's, it's the self-life. As I thought about these things, I thought, you know, what made Paul so courageous that he could say these things and so determined that even against all this opposition, that he would not stop, he would not quit with the calling that God had in his life? And I think it goes back to a verse in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And I want you to turn there just for a moment, if you would, in your Bibles, but turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, because this, uh, this statement by Paul, I think, is the key to understanding his entire ministry and his capacity to continue doing the right thing, even under resistance and with opposition. Galatians 2.20. And this is what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. That means he's dead. Not physically, but he has made a willful decision that his life is over. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So now everything is directed and dictated and guided by God through Christ. The life I live in the body, in other words, this body that he has, that he continues to live in, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to suggest to you this morning that that it's impossible for us to really live the Christian life if we're still holding on to our own. And I think this is a struggle for all of us. It's a struggle for me. Maybe, maybe you've arrived and, and you've, you know, you've, you've peaked and you've plateaued and you've gotten to the point where you never think about yourself and you never calculate the cost uh, in terms of your own uh, suffering or your own difficulty or the challenge that might be in front of you. That you never think about uh, you know, strategizing how you can make sure you're taken care of in the future that you don't do that. But I still struggle with those things. There's still sometimes a, times when I'm, I'm dealing with that. And I, and I go back to Paul's words and he says, I have been crucified. I'm dead. You know, it's really hard to hurt a dead guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, not that you'd want to, but the idea is if somebody is really dead, there's, you know, all the insults, all of the yelling, all the beatings, I mean, it's just meaningless. There's nothing you can do to a dead guy that's going to have really any impact on him because he's dead. And Paul says, I will to die now while I'm still living so that I can live for Christ in this body that I still have. And because he lived that way, he was able to go into each and every one of these circumstances with a mindset, I don't have to survive. You know, I want to share something with you that is so helpful to me, is that when I struggle, which I do at times, over this or that or the other thing, and I'm not quite sure how it's going to turn out, and there's this part of, you know, there's this innate part of us, this, this will to live, you know, the survival mode. And, and I think God has put it there, but, but it is superseded by the power of Christ when a, when a man or woman receives Christ and says, not my will, but yours be done. And suddenly when I say the words of Paul, I choose to die that I might live and I don't have to survive anymore, suddenly I, the, the options of how I can handle that situation explode. It opens up in so many directions. If I have to survive, I've only got a couple options. 
And people have to get hurt along the way if, I, if it's going to work right, <laughs> and hopefully not me. But when I've come to the place that Paul came to of saying, I've been crucified, he went on in, in another place to say that, that he's been bought at a price. He doesn't belong to himself anymore, but he belongs to God and his whole now objective, his whole agenda in life, his whole duty before God is to live for the king. I, I, wanna, I want you to just think just for a moment. I want to take just a minute on this longer. But I want you to think about the thing that you're most concerned about right now. Just for a moment. You, you, you've already been thinking about it, but let's, I, I want you to concentrate on it just for a minute. Okay, so you're thinking about that one thing. And, and, and I want you to superimpose this different perspective that you don't have to live through this. Your, your house doesn't have to survive. You, you don't have to have that job. That even if you lost your life or your family's life or your spouse's life or your children's life, that you can trust God with all of these things and that it's going to be okay because God's in control because he said he is. He's sovereign. And suddenly this, this weight, I don't know what it does for you, but suddenly it just like it just... You know, this, this heavy weight that we carry because we are trying to negotiate and strategize and work the angles to make everything work out how we think it should work out suddenly falls away because we don't have to survive. This is the mindset of Paul. That's why he can go from crisis to crisis and just say, what's next? I'm ready. I'm ready to die. He, he said that already in the book of Acts when they were prophesying, Paul, you're going to suffer. He says, look, I'm ready to die for Christ. I made that decision when I came to Jesus. I'm crucified. It's not my life. I'm the servant of the king. This is something, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't think very, very many Christians enter into this realm of relationship with Jesus. And the result is, is that they live battle-scarred, confused lives most of their Christian life because they're still trying to figure out why God hasn't prettied up their life and made it just like they wanted it to be. That everything didn't turn out how they wanted it. Not everyone lived. Not everyone survived. You know, there were some crises, there were some challenges, but suddenly when you realize it's not about you, but it's about God, and your life is not your own, you're putting on different glasses, spiritual glasses, that enable you to be used in ways that you never would have even imagined possible. That's what Paul is inviting us into this morning, at least part of it. He goes on to say that not only has he fulfilled his, his duty, but he has a clean conscience. Whew. Do you know how wonderful a clean conscience is? If you're a Christian, you know how, how wonderful it is because in the book of Hebrews, it says that God has sprinkled our minds and our hearts through the blood of Christ and given us a clean conscience from all the things that we did in the past. How could Paul have a clean conscience? He was a murderer, but he'd been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But it also says in Acts 24, 16, that he maintained that clean conscience by having a clean conscience both before God and man. So God gave him that clean conscience, but that he continued to preserve that by doing what was right so that he could put his pillow at night, his head on the pillow, and sleep. You know, I, I, I remember, it hasn't been that long ago, but I remember as an unbeliever going to sleep and, and waking up in the night in, in sweats, you know, thinking, I hope nobody finds out what I did. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out if they talk to this person and they talk to that person and that person talks to that person that your whole life could just unravel, you know? And you know what I'm talking about. And, and so, but to go to bed at night, and I was telling the, 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 uh, the uh, fellowship last night as we met here, how one, I love sleep. I didn't used to like sleep. 
But I love to go to bed. It's like one of my favorite times. I don't know. I, I, I'm getting older, I guess. But I just, I just love to go to sleep. I don't know what it is. But I, I love it. It's been the last three or four years. But I just love to go to bed because I just sleep like a baby. And I'm just like, oh, this is so good. I worked hard all day long. And, <sighs> clean conscience. You know? It's a wonderful thing. And Paul claimed that. And, and he, one thing I just want to share with you this morning. If, you're, if your heart and your conscience isn't clean this morning, it's a simple matter of making it right with God. Just make it right with God this morning. Confess your sin, acknowledge it to him, let him cleanse you and purify you, and then move on. And don't do those things that, were, that are damaging to your conscience anymore. Turn from those sins and, uh, and walk with the Lord. But Paul claims his clear conscience, which is just a really an amazing thing. Now, we, we look in verse 2, really the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. And, and before we can really understand how bad it was, I need to tell you about Ananias the high priest. Almost all the information that I'm going to give you right now is, is from Josephus, who was a, a, a secular historian, uh, Jewish historian at the time uh, in Jesus' day and during the days that, uh, that these events were taking place. And we are told in the text of Josephus that the high priest, uh, this particular high priest, was appointed by the younger brother of Herod Agrippa I, and he reigned from uh, AD 47 until 59, so about 11 or 12 years. He was a member of the Sadducean party, which is helpful to us because this, the, Sad, the uh, Sanhedrin is divided, almost like Republicans and Democrats. But anyway, this is what's going on. And, and, and if you can imagine them, uh, of Democrats and Republicans, that's a, in essence what you have happening uh, with, between the Sanhedrin, in the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, but Ananias was a Sadducee, so there was a real power that was going on in this group of people because he was the elected president of sorts of this uh, body of, of elders. We also know that he was known for being one of the most cruel and evil and violent-tempered and corrupt high priests ever to hold the office. It was his personal piggy bank, and he used it liberally. He also was known for keeping company with the Sicarii. The Sicarii were a group of, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but they're called dagger men. They have daggers in their cloaks and they just, you know, they're walking along. They're terrorists of that day. And they walk along, you can't tell them apart from anyone else, and a few of them would gather around a target, uh, a Roman official or a Jewish leader, and they would just, you know, run, get around him and, in, in a crowd and just, you know, and it was over, and they'd all walk away, and there was the guy dead, and the Sicarii had struck. This is the band of people that Ananias had a coalition with to get the job done because Ananias wanted to overthrow Rome. And in the process, he was also killing his own countrymen who were resistant to that plan. And the last thing that we know about uh, Ananias that's pertinent to our text is that he was responsible for the violent stoning of James, the brother of Jesus, and the pastor and leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so this ungodly high priest, when Paul defends himself and says he has a clean conscience, the, the priest, with some sort of a little hand signal, signals that one of these other men of the Sanhedrin are to strike Paul. So they strike him. And we're not talking about, you know, some little French thing with the gloves and, you know, this kind of thing. We're talking about a full throttle, uh, you know, hit in the face. It's not close-fisted, but it's, it's painful. But more than anything, it's an insult, and it's meant to be a strong in Jewish insult to the apostle Paul. And Paul immediately responded in verse 3, and he called the priest a whitewashed tomb um, or a whitewashed wall. And I don't know if any of you have ever bought a used car or a used house. Uh, everything I've ever bought is used mostly. And uh, so one of the things that I'm always looking for if I buy a used car is I'm looking for the guy that has, you know, bondoed over the rust 
and sanded it down and painted it and clear-coated it because you know what's going to happen, right? You know, like three months after I buy the car, it, the rust is going to start bubbling and popping and the Bondo starts popping off and I realize, oh no, I got whitewashed, you know? <laughs> I got ripped off. And, and the, the purpose of the whitewashing was to plaster over something that was either, you know, damaged or unclean in some way. You're trying to hide something that otherwise would be repulsive. And what Paul is saying to the, to the high priest is that you are whitewashed. You, you look good on the outside, but inside there's, there's evil and corruption. And it's the very same uh, accusation that Jesus made in uh, Matthew 23 against the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He called them hypocrites and he called them whitewashed tombs. And uh, I don't have time to talk about it too much, but, you know, a tomb was whitewashed because they wanted to identify it so nobody would step on it because if you stepped on it, you were unclean. And so they were whitewashed in, in Israel, and they still are to this day. And uh, the reason is, is that they really believe if you get near a dead body that you're unclean. And what Jesus was saying and Paul was affirming uh, with Ananias is that they, they, were, they looked pretty on the outside, but inside there was death. That's a pretty, uh, I, I'm not sure I was thinking about that. Is that an insult? I guess it would be considered an insult to call a person a whitewashed tomb. And, and he also con- uh, accuses him of judging hypocritically. And he says, you're, you're, you're standing in the, in the, in the, for the purpose of judging me using the law, and by that very law, you violate me by striking me as I'm under trial. I haven't even been accused of anything yet. I haven't even had a chance to really defend myself. And so he calls them hypocrites. It's interesting. It's, it's one of the things that, that so often the, the church is accused of is hypocrisy. And uh, unfortunately, there, there's some validity to that accusation at times uh, because the church hasn't necessarily always entered in fully into the Christian life. We're, we're, we're one foot in and one foot out. And when we live that way, well, of course we're going to be living hypocritical lives because we haven't made the final decision to live only for Jesus. And because of that, we'll be divided in our own hearts. But a hypocrite was actually not a bad thing originally in the Greek uh, theater. It was an actor. A hypocrite was somebody that put on a, a persona and they began to act out a part that wasn't even really their life, but they were acting it out for the purpose of entertainment. And so we find that uh, this word hypocrite over the years kind of evolved and morphed into a, a derogatory term, meaning somebody that's phony, that's not really real. And so Paul, in just a couple of sentences, really kind of lays it on very heavy to a guy that wasn't used to having anyone ever criticize him. He was very powerful and, and the truth was very evil. And so Paul, uh, having said this, was immediately rebuked by some people that were standing by and, uh, and Paul recanted and repented right on the spot. Now, I, I, I want to take just a moment and talk about this, but there's a lot of debate about what really happened here. And, and we, I'll tell you, really, the end of the story is I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm going to give you my, my suggestion. Some have suggested that Paul, by saying he didn't know he was the high priest, was, he'd simply lost his temper. And certainly throughout the scripture, the Bible is unvarnished. You know, the strengths and the weaknesses of the men and women of God are laid out bare uh, for us to read. And it could be that Paul just simply lost his cool. Um, the reason I don't think that that's probably likely is he said, I didn't realize it was the high priest. So he would have compounded his sin of having a bad temper with a sin of lying about uh, why he had done it. Because he says clearly, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. Another possibility is that he was intentionally being sarcastic, just saying, look, I had, I'm just making a point that 
I couldn't even imagine a high priest ordering something like that. But again, if he was being sarcastic and he was just making another dig, then he would have been guilty of a second sin, which was lying because he said that he didn't realize that it was the high priest. The only other really meaningful possibilities that are left are that it may have been Paul's bad eyesight. We already know that he already was struggling with his eyesight and he could have possibly just not even seen or realized that it was the high priest, uh, uh, that it was Ananias that was commanding this. But I find it possibly even more likely that because Paul had not been in Jerusalem for 20 years and Ananias had just been appointed to this position a year previous to this, that Paul just didn't know who he was. And he just saw this guy giving a signal and, and in the confusion of the meeting and how everything was kind of thrown together so quickly that, uh, that it just wasn't apparent to Paul who the high priest was. And, uh, and that's the option I would suggest. But Paul goes on to, to repent, uh, citing scripture in Exodus 22:28 that it's inappropriate for anyone to ever curse the ruler of your people. And uh, by the way, uh, as we enter into the... Uh, the, the fray of the elections, keep that verse in mind. Uh, you know, whether the, the person that's elected is a Democrat or Republican, the Bible's pretty clear on this, is that we're not to bring railing comments against our leaders, but we're to pray for them. So in the vigor of your debate with your friends, uh, continue to honor even those that you don't agree with. Uh, you, can, you can share your opinion without being derogatory or uh, critical in a, in a uh, sinful way of the people that you are discussing. And so, but the thing that really strikes me is the, is the rapid uh, method in which Paul repents. He's just like right on the spot. He, he was very quick to make his comments and his statements to the uh, high priest, to Ananias, but he was equally quick to repent when he found out he was wrong. This is a really good role model for us. And it's really mapped out for us in Matthew chapter five when Jesus says, if, you've, if you know you've harmed your brother in some way, he says, I don't even want you coming and worshiping me. I, I don't think there's any place else in the Bible where God says, I don't want your worship, except it's in Matthew 5. And he says, don't give it to me yet. Give it to me, but not yet. Go first and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And so I want to encourage you, again, this clean conscience that Paul had was because he just kept a, a, a clean slate with God. He repented right away. There, there are times that I've had in my life where I have not repented for months and sometimes years for things. I've just been unwilling and resistant and uh, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. And I just don't want to live that way anymore. So I'm, I'm learning uh, how to just be quick to repent. And I would encourage you, if you've got something on your mind that you know that you've done, it might have happened 20 or 30 years ago. It might have been somebody you dated in high school, you know? It, well, for some of you, that's just like a, two weeks ago. Uh, for the rest of us, it's, it's been a while. Okay, but... You know, you get, you get the drift. Some business situation, some crisis, some broken friendship, and you just never really owned up to it. Just own up to it. Get it done. Take care of it. And have a clean conscience. But that's the modeling of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul realizes that there's, he's in trouble. This body of, uh, of judicial servants uh, are not interested in justice whatsoever. It's a, it's a kangaroo court, and they're aimed uh, and their purpose to execute the Apostle Paul. And so he now shifts from sharing the gospel to preserving his life and, uh, and uses, does, uh, does this by dividing this body of elders uh, right down party lines. And he identifies himself as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and that he was on trial for the resurrection. Now, all of that just seems like, that's just, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's siding with half of this body of leaders, 
that are Pharisees. The other half are Sadducees. So right away, what happens is that this group goes ballistic. The Pharisees are like, hey, he's our man. He's a Pharisee. He's the son of a Pharisee, and he believes in the resurrection. And again, we think to ourselves, what's the big deal about that? But the, there was a theological divide here, and this group of men uh, focused so intently on Paul initially, shifted their attention to each other. And this, it, another riot was taking place right inside the Sanhedrin because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe in divine intervention. Uh, everything is just kind of, you know, it's really liberal theology that we have today. Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. There is no death and resurrection of Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins. God has just kind of wound the clock up and it's up to us to carry on. The Pharisees, on the other hand, uh, were, were more... Um, fundamental in their theological position. And they believed in all these things. So suddenly, this, you know, simmering debate that's just under the surface of the Sanhedrin boils to the surface because of this statement that Paul makes. And the Pharisees begin to argue for Paul. There's nothing wrong with this guy. Maybe an angel has spoken to him. And the Bible tells us in uh, verse 10 that the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. And uh, this isn't uh, uh, just hyperbole. Uh, the word means to dismember. And so Paul was being pulled at physically by the arms and the legs. And, you know, we don't see a lot of that in our politics, but if you ever watch politics in Japan or Korea uh, or in Taiwan in particular, I love the Taiwanese Senate. They go wild. They're pulling their hair. They're grabbing each other and punching each other and throwing chairs. Anybody ever see this before or is it just me? I love that kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> UFC and Taiwanese politics, some of my favorite programming. And so this, this body of leaders is going at it, and they got Paul by the arms and the legs, and they're ripping him, and, and the commander just is afraid he's going to be actually dismembered right in front of him. This poor commander. This is a bad week for this guy, and Paul is a thorn in his side for sure. And so he rescues Paul again and brings him back to the barracks, and there Paul sits. He sits for over 24 hours in a cell. Now keep in mind that for 20 years, Paul had been praying for that opportunity to share the gospel. For 20 years, he had been crying out to God to take the gospel to his countrymen. For 20 years, hoping that God would use his influence as a Pharisee to speak to Pharisees, to speak to the Sanhedrin, and that it would become this, just the, the whole Sanhedrin would fall on their knees and repent before God and become followers of Jesus Christ that they would become completed Jews. You can imagine in his mind that that was the fantasy, that that was the desire, is that, oh God, if it could only be that my countrymen would come to Christ. We see Paul's passion for his people in Romans chapter 9, uh, 10 and 11, but in particular chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And Paul loves the Jewish people, and he wants them delivered. And you can imagine that he sits in his cell, what he's thinking, he's all alone. It's dark, it's nighttime. What would you be thinking? I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be reviewing the situation. I'd be debriefing. I'd be wondering what I did wrong. I'd be thinking to myself, what if? And if only. Oh, I shouldn't have gotten upset with the high priest. I wish I'd known he, I, I, I didn't even know it was him. Oh, I shouldn't have spoken that way. Or I should have started out with a different line. I should have given my testimony first. Aren't you glad it's just Paul that has these dilemmas? 
You know, I, I was telling the, the congregation last night that I have a whole lot of these things that I've said in life. What if I had a different set of parents? Am I the only one that's done that? I would have had different genes. I would have had a different body, you know, or a different look or a different whatever. And I've thought to myself, have you, any, any, you don't have to say so, but haven't, aren't there some of you out there that kind of are angry at your parents for how, how you turned out, you know, and you think, oh, man, I just, I've got that body part or this, this look or that thing or this temperament or whatever. And, and we've kind of gone through our heart and we thought, you know, if only, I wonder what life would have been like. I wonder what life would have been like if, if I had gone to a better school or if I'd gone to school, you know? <laughs> I, if I'd... <laughs> If I had picked a different church for me to, to go to my first pastorate in, you know, what was I thinking? You know, I should have been more strategic about how I networked before I went to my first pastorate. I got stuck in New York for like seven years and I, and I didn't know if I was ever going to come back, <laughs> you know? And I said something last night that made somebody upset, but I even said that, you know, I thought, what if I'd married a different person? Yeah, oh, okay, you too. Yeah, oh, you can all lecture me now. Fortunately, my wife isn't here this morning. Oh, she is. Oh, hi, Becky. But I think I thought I thought those thoughts to myself, and I thought, you know, but you go through these things at times, mostly with my wife when we've had a disagreement or a, an argument of some sort. And I'm thinking, I wonder what, I, what life would have been like, you know. And you know, the, a woman came up to me last night and said, you know, that was that was really bad. That that makes you look really bad, Pastor. Don't say that. And I said, I am bad. And I'm still bad. And I'm bad twice. But we have these things that sometimes go through our own mind where we're struggling in the isolation and depression and discouragement of our own circumstances, wondering if, if only, what if, and might have been, could have been, should have been kind of things. I struggled with those things uh, earlier in my Christian life, and I want to tell you that I don't struggle with those things anymore because of the Bible. And I want to share two verses with you that set me free. There are actually three, but I'm going to share two with you. The first is in Proverbs 16.4. And it says, The Lord works out everything for his own ends. When I read that verse, you know, some 15 years ago, it just completely changed my perspective. And I realized that God works out everything. It doesn't mean that he's the author of everything, certainly not the author of evil or sin, but he works out everything for his purpose. That's what Romans 8.28 tells the believer, is that God works out everything for his purpose. Everything for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So we can have confidence not only that God is working, but he's also able to take the mess that sometimes we can create and he's able to harness that and he's able to, 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 to work with it and to still get his, his, his objective accomplished. I don't know about you, but that's just like, oh, that's another big, whew, that's a huge relief. And then listen to this next verse, Ephesians 1.11. In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, not some things, not most things, but works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You know, I don't know how it works. God manages to hold in tension the freedom and the free will of mankind and at the same time get the job done. So at the end of the, at the, end of the day, at the end of the game, at the end of the, of the history of mankind, the purposes of God will have been fulfilled. And what that means for me is that I don't need to second-guess my life anymore. I don't need to back up and think, oh, what, what could have been? I don't need to go in those fantasy modes anymore and daydreaming and thinking about what life might have been like under different circumstances. But I can simply accept what has occurred, even including some of my choices that probably weren't the best, 
and to surrender those to God and know that he can transform those into a beautiful work accomplishing his purpose. Is that good news or what? Okay, I think it's great news. And a few of you do out there. Okay, good. But Paul, sitting there, could have easily just been overwhelmed. And, and here's the interesting thing is, is that God didn't come to him right away. We know the Lord's going to come. It says in the text, I've already read it. The Lord's going to come to him. And my question is, why did God wait 24 hours? Why didn't God come to him? You know, okay, Paul, Paul is almost dismembered, brings, uh, is brought back to a cell, put in the cell, catches his breath, and the Lord appears. That's how I would have uh, designed this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, nobody asked me, but that's what I would have said. That would be the appropriate thing. Paul needs you now. Why would you wait? Have you ever wondered why you have to wait in the darkness sometimes? Well, God is testing you. God is proving you. God is refining you. And God leaves us alone sometimes in darkness when we don't even know why things are happening or how it's going to turn out and we're sitting there, the ceilings of prayer are brass and we're lost. And the Lord says, will you trust me in the darkness? Will you trust my character? Will you trust my faithfulness? Will you trust my love? Will you believe that I have the very best at heart for you? Will you honor my word? Will you love me? And Paul passed the test. And the Lord appears to him. And he says two words that are just so wonderful. He says, take courage. Oh, you know what? I, is, aren't, don't all of us need a word of encouragement every once in a while? Probably more than every once in a while. The Bible actually says that we're supposed to do this with each other every day because of the times that we live in and how difficult life can be. And so the Lord comes and says, take courage. And, and actually in the Greek it means be of good cheer. Yay! <laughs> Yay! And he says, be of good cheer. Why can we be of good cheer? Because God is sovereign and he's in control. But this is the promise for believers. If you don't know Christ, this promise is not for you. You are still in darkness. You have to wrestle alone, isolated, confused, without understanding. But it's not God's plan. He wants, he's invited everyone in. He says, anyone that would receive me and call on my name, I will give them life. They will have rivers of life flowing from within them, pouring out around them. And God will give them abundant life and meaning and understanding and purpose. And so he says, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify about me in Rome. Now, you know, I've had a couple of occasions in life, not very many, but a couple, where God has met me. And one of them, I, and I don't, I don't have time to tell you the story. I've told it before, but an angel in a dream came to me. It was a very, very dark and difficult time for me. And, uh, and I was just broken. And an angel came to me. And it wasn't, I, I wasn't aware of it. It was a dream. But this, it was so real that I woke up and, and Becky knows I, was just, I, I just came unglued. I was so blessed and I felt so ministered to. I just, uh, even now, it's just hard for me to talk about. But I just came, un, I was undone and I was weeping because of the love I felt and experienced at that moment. But I haven't had very many of those. So the question is, how can we experience this kind of courage that comes from God? Well, the Bible tells us that it comes through his precious promises in 2 Peter 1.4, through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13.14, through the fellowship and the encouragement of the saints in Hebrews 10.24 and 25, 
and through supernatural events and divine appointments and circumstances. All these are ways that God still speaks to us today. And the thing I want to say is that I think Paul probably thought he was all washed up and all finished, that he'd, he just, he'd blown it, that life was over, that he was going to be put on the shelf. And all I want to tell you is that this word, take courage, I've got more work for you to do, I can't imagine how, how much of a blessing that must have been for the Apostle Paul. And I want to tell you something. I don't care what you've done or what your week has been like or what your life has been like, God is not finished with you. Take courage, my friends. Be of good cheer. Yay. <laughs> know that God is with you. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. And even in your dark moments, hold on because he will come through and he will be with you and he will see you through. And like Paul, he also will deliver you. I have to go through this last section very quickly, but it's important. If you'll give me just a few more moments. While Paul was having this conversation with the Lord, 40 Sakari Jews were having a conversation with the Sanhedrin to bring Paul to his demise. And they took an oath and they asked the priest and the elders to partner with them in the killing of Paul and God divinely intervened. This is something that Paul didn't even know what was going on. It happened through Paul's nephew. The only time we really hear about Paul's family in the Bible. Paul had a sister and Paul had a nephew. And evidently, this was a young man because he was led by the hand uh, to the commander. Gives me the idea he's maybe 8, 10, 12 years old at the most. And I'm thinking about all this and I'm thinking, what, what do you think are the probability statistical chances of this little boy overhearing this discussion about the killing of his uncle? How is a little boy going to find avenue to get in a place like that or to be around the people who are talking in, in a dark alleyway somewhere about how this is going to unfold? Do you think this is a coincidence? I hope not. God is working. And so this young man, uh, shortening the story, goes to the commander and explains to the commander what happens. And this commander, uh, as a result, delivers the apostle Paul and sends him on his way to Caesarea to meet with Governor Felix where he will stand trial. Once again, the apostle Paul is rescued. I don't know how, how to even begin to describe how many times in the Bible we have this kind of sovereign deliverance of God where it looks awful. Moses, floating down the Nile River. Crocodiles. He survives. What's the chance that Pharaoh's daughter would pull him out of the water and he would become second in command of Egypt and then be the deliverer of Israel? How about Joseph being sold into slavery by his own family? That's low. Low, really low. And yet rises to become second in command of, again, Egypt. Delivers his family and the people of God. How about Ruth? What are the chances that she picked Boaz's field to harvest in? God was working. What about Esther? The miraculous salvation of her people when, when uh, Haman wanted to destroy and annihilate the Jewish people. All I can tell you from all these things is that I have a word for you. God is working. God is working in your life. God is working in ways that you don't even know about, but he works especially vigorously for those who are trusting in him, who even in times of darkness and don't know how it's gonna turn out or which way to turn or how the, what, how the end of the story is gonna look, and still they trust him. I'm telling you, God is active in behalf of a man or woman who puts their confidence in him. The Bible says that his eyes are ranging throughout the earth to support those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. 
I pray that God would make us men and women like that. I wanna close by just summarizing a few thoughts in how we can apply this. First of all, I wanna let you know that you can leave this place with a clean conscience. If you've never received Christ before, if you've never accepted the gift of life, if you've never acknowledged his work on the cross, you can't have a clean conscience because you're still guilty before God. You may not feel that way, but this is what God's word says. And he says he wants to cleanse that conscience. But it happens when we humble ourselves and acknowledge what we've done, the people that we are, the bad things about us, the wrongs that we've committed against God. And when we do that and ask Jesus Christ into our heart, the Bible says that we are adopted into his family and he's cleansed us and he's purified us and made us right. And so possibly there are some here today that have never done that. There are no secret prayers. There's no gimmick. It's like anything else. It's a friendship. It's a relationship. And God is inviting you and he's saying, would you like to be whole? Would you like to live for eternity? Do you want to experience the abundant life? Do you want my favor? Would you like a clear, clean conscience? Would you like to be forgiven of your sins? Would you like to have relationship with me? And that's available for you today. The second thing that I take away from this text is the importance of testifying of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the duty and the honor and the privilege of every believer. We can't stop. It doesn't matter what the persecution is or what the opposition is, there is a mission to be accomplished and the reason is that everything is at stake. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, God has strategically placed you where you are that you might be a voice and a mouthpiece that they might hear the wonderful words of salvation in Jesus. And the last thing I wanna share with you is the sovereignty of God over all history. God uses the corrupt elders of Israel. He uses a godly man named Paul. He uses Roman officials. He uses a handful of Jews that were uh, Sicarii, assassins. He uses his, the nephew of Paul. He uses all these things to advance his cause and in the end what happens is God's will is done. Paul ends up going to Rome, the very place that God wanted Paul to go and he uses even another riot to accomplish that purpose. And amazingly, he's able to do this without violating the free will of man and still ensure that his program will be carried out exactly as planned from all eternity. Let me leave you with a closing verse. It's a verse that we're all familiar with. It's a verse that should bring great comfort to our lives, especially in light of this message. But it's a verse that will give greatest comfort to those that have made the decision that they no longer live, that their life is not their own, that their entire goal, their entire objective in life is not to survive, but to live for Christ. And it goes like this, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord in the very midst of your situation that you're going through now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. When you're in the in the cell and the darkness and you haven't been delivered yet, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We have such great hope as believers. I'm encouraging you this morning. Yay. <laughs> We've got a great savior. <laughs> We've got a great friend. We've got a deliverer. And he will see you through. He will deliver you. He will bring you home. 
and you will come home safely. And in the meantime, we've got work to do. Let's be about our Father's business. Living is not necessary. Surviving is not the objective. Obeying Christ. And the rest is up to him. Let's make it about the Lord Christ and about his agenda, and let's fulfill our duty before the Lord with great joy. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, and Lord, it's just such an honor to be in your presence. God, I'm praying that you'd bless every man and woman here. I know that so many are facing such challenge, more than they can bear, but Lord, you're using it to humble them, to bring them to their knees in prayer, to bring them to the end of all of their strategies and all of their ideas and their planning, all of the counsel around them, and bring them to prayer, to dependence. And some of them are in darkness right now and don't know where to turn. They're facing illness, sickness. They're facing financial crisis. They're facing loss of friendships. And they're crying out, Lord, I pray that you would come to them and that you would meet them in this moment and that you would give them encouragement, Lord, and share with them the next stage, the next step of what you're calling them to do. And Father, I pray for all the rest of us, God, that you would give us just a heart to serve you. Thank you that you're in control. Oh, Lord, what a good, good God you are that we don't have to carry all of this. We can have a clean conscience and we can entrust ourselves to you. And as if we, we've said so often, and our brother Dana encouraged us so many years ago, we don't have any problems as servants of God. God, you've got problems, and you have solutions. In the meantime, may your name and your, your great work be exalted and honored in and through our lives, and may you use us, God, in whatever way you wish. And Lord, right now we confess before you, we don't have to make it. We don't have to survive. We don't have to live through it. We don't have to win. God, we want your glory and your praise and your honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.